0: Hallelujah. Yes Lord, we confess with this song that we are desperately lost, hopelessly under condemnation and judgment. Unless and until you revive us, you save us. You call us back from death unto eternal life, the newness of life in Christ our Lord. In his name we pray in his name we trust. In this day we see before us his table that his pain and suffering on Calvary has spread before us. Remind us O Lord Jesus that when the crown or when the thorns of that crown were crushed into your brow, that a table was laid before that great feasting banquet in glory, and that when nails were driven into your hands and feet, the silverware, as it were, were laid beside that place setting. And as you suffered and breathed out your last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wine was poured into the cup. And as you gave up the ghost, as you surrendered your body, to the wrath of the Almighty as a substitute for our sacri- and sacrifice for our sin. The bread was laid upon that table. And when you rose de- again, the door of your tomb and the doors of glory were thrown open to the elect, saying, Come and feast with me. The cost of your death on Calvary welcomes us, your children, to the table of fellowship and reconciliation with you, and this is what we celebrate and confess and affirm and trust in now and for all eternity. Remind us of these truths, which are eternal, profound, immeasurable in their depth, in their awesome glory, as your word is proclaimed and as we feast at the table of the Lord this day. In this, may you be glorified, Jesus, and your word proclaimed, and the gospel emphasized, and the church equipped to announce Christ as Lord and in Him as salvation from now until you return. In your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a grace, what a glory and an honor and a privilege it is to open the Scriptures together and to consider the Holy Word of God. Please join me in turning to the book of Jude which has grown familiar to us on Communion Sundays of late, as we have sought to plumb its depths a bit in our sermon series. We'll continue doing this today in Jude, verses 16 through 23, focusing on two pairs. On the one column, as you recall, the theme of the last three messages in this book, we have descriptions of the ungodly. In the other column, we have admonitions, instructions for the holy. These are important distinctions for Jude to equip the church. And by extension, for us, of course, as a church today, they are ever-present, ever-relevant. This morning's message is drawn from two references, two key words in the text. It's simply mercy and fire. If two words in our passage today could illustrate the stark difference and what's at stake in the gospel and our own future, I think those do well to summarize them. Mercy, that which is provided not because of what we deserve, but because of what Christ sacrificed for us in glory. Fire, that which he saved us from, the eternal wrath and judgment to our sin. The aim of this morning's message is to supplement growth in holiness via gospel perspective. To take the perspective we are hoping today to glean from Jude, a cohort to the early apostles, and by those gospel realities, truths, boundaries, barriers, and lenses, to see the world and the scriptures that we might be supplemented in our growth in our own holiness as believers. And if we have not confessed our sin and turned to him, that the convicting authority of his word might draw us to repentance and faith. With that introduction and your hearts standing in reverence to the word as you're able, would you rise with me for the, hear- for the hearing of God's word as it is proclaimed today? I'm going to give you 14b and we'll go through verse 23 as we retread some of these passages today. Here is the word of God. Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The context of Jude's instructions, his admonitions to us, can be summarized, as I've said, in two key words today I've taken as my title. These provide clarifying truths to reinforce the faith of every true believer. Mercy versus fire. There is amazing and eternal mercy in Jesus Christ for the saints, albeit His mercy is weighty indeed. The mercy and grace of our God is not something cheap, capricious, given on a whim, readily available at low cost. No, nothing could be further from the truth. It is precious, powerful, significant, and weighty indeed. It is, the mercy of God, salvation from the fiery judgment stored up in the furnace of God's just wrath, awaiting the final judgment of the unrepentant. So, considering this framework and this context of gospel truths, Because the stakes are so high, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, for example, and their cohorts, Jude, for example, could not afford to tolerate corrupting influences within the confessing church of Jesus Christ. Because it's either mercy or fire. Because the stakes are so high, those who wrote and encouraged and equipped the church to stand could not afford corrupting influences to come in to distort these kinds of things, to introduce different concepts or ways of thinking, enemies of the faith that would distract from what is ultimately true and the high stakes that salvation and the lack thereof represent. So therefore, the context of Jude's book provides warning and equipping for us, the church. As we have noted throughout our sermon series from this book, Jude is preparing his readers to oppose anything or anyone who would seek to diminish or deny four things we read about in the doxology, doxology, verse 25, describing Jesus Christ. The glory, majesty, dominion, and authority of our Lord and Savior. Again, Jude is preparing his readers to oppose. This is a key uh, theme we've taken from this book. Jude is preparing his readers to oppose anything or anyone, even anything in your own heart that would seek to diminish or deny the glory, the majesty, the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And verses 16 through 23, we continue now in this kind of series within a series, our fourth one, to catalog his descriptions of the ungodly on the one hand and his admonitions to the holy on the other. These distinctions understood and applied, these differences, they fortify us to contend for the faith, that's Jude's language for standing strong against enemies of the gospel, for fighting for the faith, defending it, standing firm, for contending for the faith, as he says, that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in light of this today, we consider on the one hand, the ungodly cause division or division causers versus the other hand, the holy show mercy to those who doubt. And likewise, the ungodly are worldly people versus the holy are those called to save others by snatching them out of the fire. So let us consider this in the context of Jude's words, allusions that he draws on from the Old Testament, and a couple of corresponding texts of Scripture under this heading. Jude emphasizes distinctions between the following. Number one, as I said, division causers versus the merciful. Underneath that, our outline remains simple this morning, per the pattern we've been using. What do do those who cause division look like, and what do the merciful look like? And then the second major point this morning, worldly people versus those who snatch others from the fire. What does worldliness look like in the church or in our own hearts? And finally, what does snatching others from the fire look like? What does Jude mean exactly by these things? That's what we'll seek to answer those questions today. Number one, Jude emphasizes distinctions between those who cause division. That would be strife, contention, animosity, fighting, you know, within the church and its members, within the body of Christ, versus the other side, the merciful, the difference between the two. And these two, or these two references are taken from verse 19 and 22. Of the ungodly, Jude says, it is these who cause divisions. And Then he goes on in the same verse, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But on the other hand, verse 22, as we have these two columns we match that with, and have, this is instructions for the holy, Have mercy on those who doubt. So what does it look like to cause division? And what are some symptoms of this kind of behavior? What should we watch out for in the church and in our own hearts? Well, from Jude's words in context, let me submit the following. We might identify three manifestations. These would be disruptive influences and factors within the church. And they are as follows. Number one, the rejection of authority. Number two, blasphemy in disguise, and number three, self-will or self-righteousness. The rejection of authority, blasphemy in disguise, and looking out for oneself, self-will. These are three things that Jude warns us and identifies as problems that need to be prepared for and that we need to be equipped to discern and to uh, deal with. Verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. These are the enemies that Jude is consistently warning us about in his epistle, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. He uses this term again, this modifier, ungodly to describe them. Ungodly people who do what? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There is a rejection of Jesus Christ as master and Lord. That is, there is a rejection of authority. There's a challenge to it that those who cause division often represent. Its recurring theme illustrated several ways in the text, not just this verse, but also verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, describing examples of this kind of influence that Judas is describing, these people also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. He gives three circumstances in covenant history to illustrate his warnings as well. In verse 11, we've covered this at length in past messages as well. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. We've remarked that each one of those represents a different kind of division-causing tendency. In the case of Korah's rebellion, it was a rejection of God's appointed authority, the authority of Moses. In the case of Balaam, it it was basically systemic immorality, sensuality, and basically using the lusts of the people as a Trojan horse to come in, as it, uh, so to speak, and destroy them. In the case of Cain, it was doubling down on self-will and his uh, resentment. And so he acted completely independent. Once again, blasphemy in disguise, rejecting the authority of God's word, and acting in complete self-will, Cain broke God's law and killed his brother. What is this? This is blasphemy, furthermore. Not only is it rejecting authority, but any time you reject the authority of Jesus Christ, it's not as if you proceed under no authority or no appeal to authority whatsoever. No, what do you do? Instead of the submitting to the authority of God, of Jesus Christ and His Word, you substitute another. Most often in our modern day, it's ourselves, is it not? Self-will becomes the blasphemous God of those who reject, in commonly in these days, the authority of the Lord. Ultimately, it is a rejection of authority and a substitute of something else instead of the Holy One, Jesus Christ, that leads to these corrupting influences within the church. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They are ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 describes them furthermore in this example when the archangel Michael contended with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And here what he is saying is that to speak, presuming authority, independent of God's word, is to pronounce something blasphemous. To stand on something independent of what God has verified and established as the bedrock for our soul's convictions and what is right and what is wrong, is to introduce a false god. It is to deny him to substitute something in his place. It is blasphemy. Verse 10 continues on the theme, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So here we see that what is often substituted as an authority or a motive for action is one's base, carnal, fleshly, sinful desires. Instead of what God has said. But in this way, it is not just a sort of moral anarchy, but it is an, obli- an overt blasphemy against the Lord. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. What of this self-will? I said that you know today, while we uh, certainly have idols and we certainly reject authority often in our culture, It seems like this self-interest, self-identity, self-will, the worship of self, and the assertion of self-autonomy, if you will, a law unto oneself, is so common. Well, this creates problems and is probably, if you would pick any of these concepts, at the very root of division-causing within the church. When one pursues his own self-interest at the exclusion of others, it can only create strife. In verse 12, these are blemishes on your love feasts. They are, uh, they, uh, as they, excuse me, feast with you without fear. They are, as some uh, translations rightly identify, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. So what is pictured here in these various illustrations is that this radical selfishness, self-interest, and self-centeredness creates chaos. It's like a cloud promising rain, but nothing ever comes. It's like the storm without the, nourishing, uh, without the nourishing moisture required for the trees to grow. It's like trees that are twice as bad as if they just didn't bear fruit. Maybe there's hope for them next year, but no, they're uprooted. They're dead. The reason they bear no fruit is they have no roots there are wild waves on the sea. There is no direction. You can't count on them. There's no consistency. So when we follow ourselves, our own sinful desires, when we live life according to our impulses and our, our strongest felt emotions without holding them accountable and passing them through the filter of God's word, what breaks out is moral chaos. Self-will involves two things, pride and self-indulgence. Self-indulgence would be the desires that drive us in our sin. Pride would be, I deserve or I should have the right to follow these kinds of things. This is what Jude summarizes in terms like ungodly passions. Whether pictured in the fate of the rebellious angels, those who pridefully, following Lucifer, declared their autonomy and their independence against the Lord when we're summarily cast out of heaven, or the moral anarchy of Sodom and Gomorrah, another reference in the text, or the premise of the sin of Korah, Cain, or Balaam's apostasy, Jude identifies the tendency in every age for the truth to fall victim to self-will or self-righteousness. When we serve ourselves, the truth of God's word is the first casualty. In Judges 21:25, you have all of the chaotic and dysfunctional events of a society falling apart The horror, the tragedy, and the sin that becomes systemic and unraveling in the society. And what is the judgment and the big lesson, the moral takeaway, is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Because everyone pursued their own unqualified self-interest, then there was no king, there was no authority. A unifying principle that would keep the society together was lost. And what happened? Divisions. Divisions between tribes, divisions between families, divisions between ideas of worship. Everybody fighting for their own sovereignty proved to be a battle that destroyed the body of Christ pictured in the people of God at that time from the inside out. The motives of the people at the time proved deceptive and corrosive. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and when these motives infect the church, It proves disruptive and damaging. Ambition motivated by self-will or self-promotion inherently leads to division. Rather than promoting Christ for his sake, occasions for conflict arise by competing self-interest. This is what I would prefer. Well, this is what I would prefer. And there can be no unity of shared mission, purpose, or worship if everyone is acting as his own God. Let me tell you, there is only one God. There is only one truth. There is only one element or one ultimate, one sovereign. And unity of the church, it comes only into submission, in submission to him. When we crucify our flesh and our preferences, when we crucify our pride and our self and our tendency to self-indulgence and walk in forgiveness, grace, and mercy, a beautiful cohesion arises. But this is impossible without mutual submission. Everyone who is in the body of Christ confessing in one accord, in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace, that He is the sovereign and He is the Savior. I can neither save myself nor can I govern myself well, but when the church submits to Him, crucifies the flesh, repents and turns to Him, embraces sanctification and puts the other things that would distract, distort, and disrupt, and corrode aside, a beautiful unity arises. So this source of conflict can be confessed and repented of as we lay our personal preferences aside. And then we will find a unity arising. This will happen in our personal lives, in our homes. It is the key to unity and a beautiful harmony within the church. That doesn't mean there aren't problems that arise, but it does mean... The church has a healthy immune system, if you will, to deal with it. We still have the fallenness of our world to contend with, but we have the antibodies of the spirit and the means that he supplies to send those white blood vessels, blood cells, if you will, to fight against the, the things that would otherwise produce a septic infection, just to build on the analogy of a healthy body. So, for, and, we, and by the way, this principle extends all the way out. Uh, we're talking primarily in our applications of our personal lives and our church right now, but you move out one more circle or two and you have a society. Our society is self-imploding. It's on a disruptive, I, I mean, there are, how many times have you heard even from just the random you know, analysis of an individual, an unsafe person, anyone living in this culture, never has, there been, has our society been more divided. Never has it been more polarized. And then you look and you drill down and you see, well, what is the cause for the division? And you find out it's everything from ultimate questions to the horrifically petty. That is an excuse for people to be at odds with one another. There's no cohesion. There's no hope for it. How many of you, show of hands, place hope in our current operative political system to bring us to a unified, strong America? Show of hands. I don't see a single one. Why is that the case? Why, do, why have we lost all hope? And we're not alone as believers in this. People have grown cynical against uh, against the current order of society to bring peace and cohesion. Well, the reason is, is because when everyone pursues their own self-interest, their own self-identity to the exclusion of his neighbor, and does not surrender to the sovereign Jesus Christ, and does not measure his obligations to his neighbor, whether it be his husband or, or her husband or his wife, excuse me, almost inadvertently adopted the corruption of our society right now and the way I was laying out the relationships within a godly home. But no, whenever we adopt ourselves as the standard by which to judge and and our actions and our interactions with others, there can be no hope for unity and cohesion. A strong society, a family, a people, a, a nation, a church can only be unified when Jesus Christ is Lord and we submit and surrender to him. So this is what division looks like as opposed to unity. On the other side, uh, the Jude admonishes us to be merciful. So we have the division causers. What's the polar opposite? The merciful, if you will. Verse 22, as against this, we have instructions. Have mercy on those who doubt. We are to extend mercy. I love Jude's instructions. I see them as an extension, and application. to The problems that he was addressing within the church of the opening of Jesus' great sermon in Matthew 5. You remember this, don't you, the Beatitudes? He, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now ask if any of these sound like the self-interested or self-indulgent impulses of those who walk in the flesh. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for their own self-interest, for, the, for that which they consider their preferences that they would most like to pursue. No, for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There it is, merciful. He goes on, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. These are characteristics that follow those who are submitted to Christ, have the interests of his kingdom in mind, the love of the Lord and his people, the, and they are pursuing and in concert with and harmony with his plan to build the relationships and covenants within the order of, uh, the order of the community, the Christian community that he has designed, such that they will build and strengthen and encourage. This is what the merciful look like. They are the pure in heart. They are the ones who pursue righteousness. They hunger and thirst for it. They are the poor in spirit. They are the merciful, and so on. Now, as we continue to see Jude's exhortations in this regard, we see that not only does Jude have sort of an application of the Beatitudes applied to the challenges within the church of his day, but we have at least two further applications we could draw with respect to mercy. He says, have mercy on those who what? Mercy on those who doubt. So we are called To be long suffering with those who remain skeptical to some degree, who have doubts and weaknesses in their faith. I suggest that this could well apply to those within the church who are believers but need to be strengthened. They're doubting, they're struggling in their flesh with the certainty that comes from having feet firmly grounded on the Lord and in His Word. I'm sure we can all relate to that weakness of the soul that we experience from time to time. But also, there are, of course, doubters that remain unbelievers. Outside the faith. And I believe it is appropriate to apply the calling of mercy to both. Consider the calling of mercy for evangelism. Uh, have mercy on those who are around you by sharing with them the truth that there is fire to escape and that there is mercy in Christ alone to escape it. We can expound the connection to the last exhortation, perhaps. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We are described in Jude's words as those believers who are waiting for the mercy of Jesus Christ to rescue us from this veil of tears and usher us into the fullness of his kingdom realized in glory one day. We call this heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. But we also know that this is not because we are righteous and holy, but the reason that we own a ticket, a non-refundable a ticket, non-perishable ticket to the kingdom of heaven, is because of his mercy and grace alone. So, we who remember this, it is natural then for us who have received mercy and held, are held, holding ourselves accountable to remembering that, to extend mercy to others, we can have mercy on those who doubt and apply the calling or this calling to be merciful to evangelism as we connect the two. Mercy leading unto eternal life is the promise and gift that we've received, but let us not be selfish and stingy and hoard it and bury it as it were, but let us extend mercy to others. It goes hand in hand with remembering the great gift of our salvation. There are motives for hiding our light under a bushel, and the one we most commonly might think of is fear of man, well, I'm embarrassed to share my faith. But there are other things that can cause us to put a bushel over our light. And taking mercy for granted is one of them. Taking mercy extended to us for granted can lead us to a sort of jaded indifference toward those around us who remain under God's wrath. And so Jude's admonition to us is remember the mercy extended to you. I mean, I, and I mean chiefly illustrated at the Lord's table today as we hold ourselves accountable to the cost of our salvation and the cost of that mercy extended to us by partaking on our lips the very elements which symbolize the death, the burial, the shedding of Jesus' own blood. As we do this, then we can remove the bushel of jaded indifference and begin to be motivated to a greater extent to extend mercy to those who doubt by sharing with them the gospel and pray that in so doing, We might be privileged to be used by God's hand to snatch them from the fire, which we'll touch upon in a moment. Furthermore, it's a motive for apologetics. When we contend for the faith and share the truth of the Word of God, we can do so addressing questions, offering evidence, engaging with arguments. We see the apostles doing all these things. And by these, the faith is clarified to the skeptical, we pray. But listen, not because they have an excuse to doubt, and not because they have a leg to stand on in their skepticism. They do not. Romans 1.20 is clear. The unbeliever is without excuse. He stands condemned and justly so. He has already been given sufficient proof that God is real, and he, has, and he stands in judgment in relationship to him. Nevertheless, we do offer these things, but what is our motive? We do so out of mercy. Out of mercy for those who doubt, we engage with them, we share the truth and evidence of God's glorious revelation, including how he saved our souls. And in so doing, we demonstrate sincere love for them. We don't grant them the luxury of their skepticism as if neutrality is, is a real thing or, or they have a right to feel like the Bible has problems. No, we do it out of mercy, at least when we do it rightly so. Once again, remember the table of the Lord this morning as a tangible reminder of the cost of God's mercy given towards us. And as we embrace that for what it's intended, it will equip us to cause less division and to extend more mercy. And second major point this morning, worldly people versus those who snatch others from the fire. Back to our text and our two columns, as it were. Verse 19, "It it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. That's the ungodly. But on the other hand, verse 23, the holy are described this way. They save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Leaving that second clause for a later message. What does it mean to snatch others from the fire? And even before we consider that, what does ungodliness look like or worldliness? What do worldly people look like? Well, one study aid that I was perusing for preparation of this message message this week gave the following definition. What is worldliness? Well, it's worldly mindedness, some argue is a better translation. It is the quote unquote wisdom. You could also substitute frame of mind or worldview. It is the wisdom, quote unquote, in harmony with the corrupt desires and affections of the fallen soul and springing from them. So if all we have to draw on for the well, from the well of our opinions and conclusions as our sinfulness and our, experiment, our experience, what will we arrive at? What will be our mindset? What will be our, worldly, our worldview? Well, it will be worldly-mindedness. It will be an uncritically adopting what seems to be the path of least resistance, giving all these influences in a fallen world a worldview derived from and limited to our fallen condition of humanity. From that springs, from that wicked soil springs the poisonous philosophies and practices excluding and independent of divine revelation and a sovereign or transcendent moral authority. So people act and think without any regard to holiness. If I could think of a key word that would describe the antidote, and the opposite of worldliness, it would certainly be holiness, I would suggest. Holiness is a recognition of the otherness of God so completely perfect and awesome in His power, majesty, wisdom, glory, His worth, His works, and attributes, that He, by virtue of His own being, is the standard and perfection and shining beacon for hope, direction, and all things pertaining to life and godliness. He and his word are the sufficient source that shines forth the light by which, as C.S. Lewis said in one famous quote, we see everything else. C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe the sun exists so much because I can shine a flashlight and find it, you know, with the tools at my own disposal. Rather, I believe the sun exists because by its light I see everything else. This is a biblical worldview. We confess the truth and authority, the sufficiency and the inerrancy of God's holy word. We confess the holiness, the power and the glory of God because by it we see everything else. We understand rightly what is sin, what is righteousness. We understand rightly and discern rightly according to that standard what is worldly and what is not. Turn with me to a great cross reference in this regard, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul uses an analogy here to demonstrate or to illustrate a contrast between the worldly and the godly uses the term veil. I think it's helpful in applying this text in our call. uh, So verse 12, 2 Corinthians 3, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Hardened minds, equal veil, which obscures their eyesight. We continue in verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. According to Paul, hard-heartedness, sinfulness, ungodliness, worldliness is like a veil that remains over our eyes. And obscures everything. We can't see clearly. We are blind in this state in our sin. But through the Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. As you consider the Scriptures, as you pray through in your own times of confessing your sins and the weaknesses of your flesh before the Lord, think about the hardness of heart tendencies that you may have. What might be that veil that may remain in part over our eyes that when lifted allows us to shun and to shed worldliness and instead embrace and endorse godliness and to welcome the transforming work of the Spirit that would change us into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another? This world, or, uh, As we consider this, This veil or this unveiled awareness and submission leading to personal sanctification from glory to glory should be the goal and the heart and the prayer request of all true saints. Pray this way. O Lord, may the veil lift from my heart. May the hardness be pulled aside and instead let me see you and therefore be transformed into the glory of the Lord, uh, according to the glory of the Lord. Let veils of deception lift and hardness Due to these from my heart. Let veils of the normalization of things in the wicked culture I live be lifted by the Spirit of God. Let the veil of fleshly desires and indulging sin in my own heart, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life be lifted as I come into your presence and as I partake at the communion table. Let the veil of bitterness and unforgiveness. Be lifted that I might see Jesus Christ and be changed into His image. Let the obscuring blinders of my, my eyes of complacency, of fear of man, of resentment, hopelessness, depression, despair, you could add to the list. Not to list every vice, but to give a few examples of that which is, if it were to be entertained, in the hardness of our heart remains a veil leading to ungodliness. That when the Spirit moves through His appointed means, lifts and then we embrace the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and we see things clearly, not obscured through the prism of our self-will and the rejection of His authority, a disguised blasphemy, but instead to see things by His light and then judge them, them especially ourselves, rightly as a result. So that's the worldliness and an antidote to the same on the one side. On the other side, the a Jude cohort to the apostles He instructs us to do something. He says, we are to snatch others out of the fire. I I love that language. So working back to our text today in verse 22, he says, not only and have mercy on those who doubt, but he gives us instructions in verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear and so forth. What does it look like to snatch others from the fire? Well, here, let me just reference one passage that is true to the context of Jude. Jude has used an archetype, a classic example of judgment and salvation from Genesis 19, and that would be Sodom and Gomorrah. Kids, what did God use to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Shout it out if you remember. What did God... Fire from heaven, thank you. Was there anybody snatched from that fire? Verse 15... Good question. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here. Let you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Kind of yelled that because I believe it communicates the urgency what's going on. There was a countdown. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and pretty soon the blast, this nuclear blast of what actually now some secular historians recognize a meteor exploding over this region has just moments before everything in the wake of God's appointed judgment will be destroyed and incinerated in an instant by the well-deserving fire of his wrath. As morning dawned, the angels therefore urged Lot and his family up. It's time to go. This is an emergency. What did Lot do? He lingered. He's an idiot. He doesn't recognize There's a hardness on his heart. There's a veil that yet remains. Yet we know from the broader testimony of Scripture that Lot is a believer. But how is God's mercy extended to Lot? In this way. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. What happens? Boom! The blast radius of God's judgments can be visible for 700 to 800 miles in radius of some historian's figure. As fire rained down from heaven and destroyed every wicked and unrepentant sinner and Lot's wife. Lot's wife looked over her shoulder. And we were talking about this in family worship last night. And she refused to be snatched from the fire. There was a veil of hardness on her heart, so much so that the worldliness that Sodom represented as hope for her soul compelled her to turn, turn back to the city that was condemned to wrath and judgment. Instantly, kids, she became a pillar of salt. We all love salt, but we'd hate to become a block of salt. There she was, standing there as a monument to the consequences of wickedness and worldliness, refusing the mercy of God, snatching them from the fire. This is what it looks like in the context of greater scripture to be snatched from the fire. It's when the mercy of God shouts the alarm in the emergency. And you know, what is the nature of an emergency? A lot of you guys are first responders. We have firemen in the crowd today. You guys know what it's like. You have firsthand experience when someone can't help themselves. They might be unconscious. And to snatch them from the fire of this life-threatening, potentially fatal emergency is to bind their wounds. It's to step in, to shout instructions, to pull them from the flames, to interrupt with a tourniquet, to stop the flow of blood. It's to act decisively and imminently. And many of you firefighters do so, risking in some cases your own life. It's at great risk of life and limb, at great personal sacrifice to step into the flame, to pull out those who are facing the blast radius of God's judgments. What does it look like to snatch others from the fire? It looks like the intervention of Sodom, the ministry of the visiting angels to Lot and family. At great cost of mockery from the inhabitants and even violence from the same, they nevertheless stepped in and said, judgment is coming. Oh, how the inhabitants hated to hear that. Why don't you assemble with your small church band and proclaim that judgment is coming on America as a result of celebrating perversion and wickedness, as we did some time ago at this uh, drag festival in Brainerd. Oh, the inhabitants of this wicked culture hate to hear that. Our, in our sin, as we indulge the wickedness and the worldliness of our self-indulgence our personal preferences, we hate to hear that in our sin. However, truth be told, It is an emergency intervention that the gospel represents. It is snatching from the fire. Let us not lose this perspective. It is something that must happen or else. And the true believer, following the model and the example of Jesus Christ, at great cost of mockery and even ourselves, we are called to be like him, to lay down our lives, take up the cross and go and see if we might be used to snatch others from the flame, to pull them from the blast radius of judgment and in so doing to be an extension of God's mercy via his servants preaching the gospel. There's other imagery in the scriptures. You might look at it at a different time. Amos 4.11, Zechariah 3.12, Jerusalem is described as a brand plucked from the fire. Similar language. The last moment she was spared and God's mercy deserving judgment. We are a brand plucked from the fire. At the last moment, God saved us. He spared us from deserving judgment. He pulled us out of Sodom and He he planted us in Jesus Christ. And He did so through the work of Christ on Calvary. We were dead to rights, yet we were rescued just in time. We were spared utter destruction. And when we discipline our children, we are extending that same kind, that's another application of this, plucking from the fire, that the gospel minister does when he preaches Christ or else. When we discipline our children, we're plucking them from the flames as it were. If you are allowed to, to not suffer the consequences of sin and just to indulge the way that you would like to live and to go on in your ungodliness and worldliness of wicked heart without consequences, it is, so to speak, to leave you in the flames. But us as parents and us as gospel proclaimers, we are called not to do that, not to be content to let our neighbor or our child smolder in the flames, but to do our best to be a minister of God's mercy and to snatch them from the fire by telling them the truth, by giving consequences and discipline to our children, by submitting ourselves to the ministry of the Word of God and its authority from turning from our own sin, allowing the proclamation of God's truth to pull us, to snatch us from the fire, and to Uh, find then our refuge and hope in him. These are great things to think about today, to meditate on and to apply in conjunction when participating in the Lord's table today. Remember, in these elements is the very means, it's the life-saving device that is thrown to you in the drowning waters of judgment, or it's the hand on the wrist in the flames of deserving destruction that pulled you out It was the body of Jesus Christ sacrificed in your place. His blood shed as an atonement to cover your sin that snatched you from the fire. Today we remember this. And one of the reasons for remembering this is because returning to that memorial of God's mercy and proclaiming it to our own souls will better equip us to have mercy on others. And in so doing, to not cause this vision, but to extend the grace of God and to not do what worldly people do and indulge our own worldliness and tendencies in this way, but be about the ministry of every faithful believer to snatch others from the fire. So think about this as we transition to communion today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word which sets straight our mind. Lord, we pray that you would give us meditations of our heart that would be acceptable in your sight. You are our strength and you are our redeemer. May the word of God proclaimed and partaken on our lips as it were today and sung in the praises of your people, the prayers and the fellowship even of the saints. May it move us, Lord Jesus, to have fruitful meditation and application of your scriptures. May it move the lost to turn, to confess their sins, and to run headlong out of Sodom once they see things clearly and light of sin and salvation, mercy and fire. We thank you, Lord, for your grace giving us these things today. And we pray in advance for baptism coming up, Lord, that there again, these truths might be emphasized such that they would be indelibly written upon the hearts of everyone who goes under that water so they would not forget the truth of their own salvation. And all of this, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.